You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Greetings, Brainiacs. This week, we're going back into the vault for our all-time most downloaded episode, Meeting New Peoples. Because I couldn't get an episode written this week either. It's a combination of the super secret project you've heard me mention a couple of times and the thing I'm calling the misadventure that took over my household's life for the last few weeks. The misadventure put the super secret project behind schedule, but now the current phase of the super secret project is done and the misadventure is almost over and things will get back to normal next week. Scout's honor, I've already started the script. Before I toss over to past Moxie, a quick thanks to a whole bunch of fabulous people who retweeted posts on Twitter this week. I do use Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, but Twitter seems to be where I'm getting the most engagement, mostly because you know how bad Facebook's algorithm is with showing you posts of pages you like? It's even worse about showing the pages when someone has interacted with them. So I'm going to be more vigilant about that. But big thanks this week to Eric Parfait, Charles with a Hammer, Odd Dad Out, Lindsay Nelson, Turn of Phrases podcast, Rough Giraffe podcast, Stories of Your and Yours podcast. What can I say? We're a very supportive community. Richard Enriquez, Strange Animals podcast, Bunny Trails podcast, Alphabet Flight podcast, Sparkles in Finley, and The Story Behind podcast. Speaking of our Facebook page, we got a great comment from a man named David Parsons, who said, I accidentally clicked on this podcast. Five episodes later, I'm hooked. I spend most of my days behind the wheel, and this podcast has kept me engaged for many miles. Like Bob Ross said, happy little accidents. Welcome to the Brainiacs, David. And now, our feature presentation. A few weeks before this recording, an American missionary in a kayak made it his goal to bring Christianity to the people of North Sentinel Island. The people there live an anachronistic life, similar to that of other cultures during the Stone Age. In the few brief encounters outsiders have had with them since the discovery of North Sentinel Island, we've discovered that they hunt with bows, have no written language, and don't know how to make fire. They have to wait for lightning to strike. The Sentinelese were not interested in hearing what the man had to say, or what anyone has to say. The people of North Sentinel Island killed the missionary, as is their habit to kill or attempt to kill anyone who gets even close to their shores. Everyone from shipwrecked fishermen to National Geographic photographers. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Accustomed as we are to the global village and social networks full of people broadcasting every moment of their lives, there are still many people in our wide, wonderful world that you might not know about. These may be undiscovered tribes or people who live among the larger nation but are genetically or culturally distinct. Let's begin in the southern Pacific Ocean, east of Papua New Guinea, where lie the Solomon Islands. Much of the Solomon Islands is undeveloped, without roads, electricity, or telephones. It's one of the most linguistically diverse nations in the world, with dozens of languages spoken, the most commonly used language being a pigeon of English and Melanesian languages. 
There had been a short-lived Spanish settlement on the islands, but not much else in the way of outside contact until Britain claimed the Solomon Islands as a protectorate in 1893. What existed before that were numerous autonomous clan-based communities often headed by a male leader with assistance. Community and family were and are important to the Solomon Islanders. The people there have dark skin, and one in ten has platinum blonde hair and blue eyes. Genetically speaking, blonde hair is rare, occurring with most substantial frequency only in Northern Europe. Many assumed that the blonde hair of the Solomon Islands and Greater Melanesia was the result of what's called gene flow, a trait passed on by the European explorers, traders, and others who visited in the preceding centuries. The islanders themselves give several possible explanations for the blonde hair. They generally chalk it up to sun exposure or a diet rich in fish. Recently, a genetic study found that the islanders have a homegrown gene that gives them their blonde hair, and it's different from that of the blonde-haired Europeans. Its frequency is between 5 and 10% across the Solomon Islands, which is about the same as where I'm from, said study author Imir Kennedy, PhD, who was born in Ireland. Within a week, we had our initial result. It was such a striking signal pointing to a single gene, a result you could hang your hat on. That rarely happens in science, says Kenny. It was one of the best experiences of my career. The researchers recruited participants and assessed their hair and skin color using a light refractance meter, took blood pressure readings, and measured height and weight. They asked the villagers to spit into little tubes to provide saliva for DNA. In the span of a month, they collected more than 1,000 samples. Then they selected 43 blonde and 42 dark-haired Solomon Islanders from the opposite extremes of the hair pigment range. Because the vast majority of human physical characteristics analyzed to date have many genetic and environmental factors, Kenny expected an inconclusive result initially that would require further study. Instead, she immediately saw a single strong signal on chromosome 9, which accounted for 50% of the variance in the Solomon Islanders' hair color. The team went on to identify the gene possible, TYRP1, which encodes an enzyme previously recognized as influencing pigmentation in mice and humans. Further research revealed that the particular variant responsible for blonde hair in the Solomon Islands is absent in the genomes of Europeans. So the human characteristic of blonde hair arose independently in Equatorial Oceania. That is quite unexpected and fascinating, Kenny said. In nearby New Guinea, the Yali tribe is most likely the smallest of the Papuan nations. I say most likely because many anthropologists are convinced that not all of the native people in New Guinea have yet been discovered. The Ali were only discovered in 1961 as it is. They make their homes in the highlands, which are the least accessible territories. The Ali tribe are believed to be cannibals and are considered to be pygmies, people who display a widespread, even unilateral tendency toward short stature. Traits like this are not uncommon in isolated communities. Recessive genes can be redoubled easily in the absence of genetic diversity. 
even the Amish in North America, have a higher-than-average occurrence of a dwarfism called Ellis Van Creveld syndrome. Yali men stand less than 150 centimeters or 5 feet tall on average. Seems like a fine height to me. Height notwithstanding, the Yali are respected, meaning feared, by their enemies. The fear reached such a degree that the Yali couldn't travel freely to visit one another. As a result, each valley in which they lived saw their language develop in a different way. The differences are so significant that people, even in neighboring valleys, cannot understand one another. The Yali were feared because not only did they defeat their enemies, they were said to utterly destroy them. They did not only eat the bodies, they allegedly ground the bones to dust, which was then thrown into the valley. They did this to prevent the victim from ever returning from the afterlife. The people from neighboring villages were said to be killed not only for revenge, but sometimes just for meat. The Yali live in round huts built from cut planks, with roofs made from pandan leaves. Women and men live separately. Women have their own houses, and men live in communal houses. Men wear traditional rattan skirts, made up of large rings, almost like a colonial hoop skirt. The skirt covers the body from the breast to the knees. The front of the skirt is supported by a kotika, a penis tube, made of the fruit of a bottle plant. Yali women wear a traditional short skirt made of grass that only covers the genitals, and their breasts are left bare. Their skirt consists of four layers. The first layer is given to girls when they reach approximately four years of age. One layer is added every four years. As soon as they reach four layers, the girl is considered mature and ready for marriage. France is France, and Spain is Spain, with a distinct line between them, and the people on each side of that line are one or the other, right? Not if you're Basque. The Basque form a small, stateless nation of three million people, whose seven historic territories cover more than 20,000 square kilometers, or 8,000 square miles, across the French-Spanish border of the Pyrenees Mountains. The Basque form a regional culture, dominant in three Spanish provinces, and to a lesser extent, three French provinces, as well as in part in a fourth Spanish province of Navarre. The Basque are one of the oldest, if not the oldest, peoples in Europe. They've lived in the same place for more than 2,000 years. Some Basque nationalists claim that should be 10,000 years. They say they are descendants of Cro-Magnon Man, and they are the only European people to continually occupy the same place. Their language, Eskara, bears no clear relationship to any other language in the world and is the oldest living language in Europe. Linguists and historians believe that it could be a direct descendant of the language spoken by cave dwellers in the region. Currently, Iskara is spoken by 37% of the Basque people, meaning there are about a million Iskaldanat, the Basque word for Iskara speaker. At least one Basque passion crosses political boundaries, an obsession with food and drink. The Basque region boasts that they have more Michelin star restaurants per square kilometer than any other country. Tens of thousands of Basque men belong to gastronomic societies, where they cook elaborate meals for each other at least once a week. 
Women are traditionally excluded as members, but may come as guests. The Bhaskar said to ask themselves three questions every day. Who are we? Where do we come from? And the most important of all, where are we going for dinner? In the far north of Europe, ancient sounds, unique crafts, and a particular language live side by side with modern technology. The Sami people live in four countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. They are estimated at 80,000 strong, half of whom live in Norway. The Sami language belongs to the Uralic linguistic family, which also includes Finnish, Estonian, and Hungarian. Even though the Sami live in Norway, their language isn't related to Norwegian or to other Indo-European languages. And it's not so much one language as nine, of which three dialects are still in use. The language is an official language in Norway, but is not accorded the same prominence as Norwegian. Traditionally, the Norwegian Sami made their living herding reindeer, and the majority of the region of northern Norway is still used for raising reindeer. The Sami also supported themselves with fishing, livestock farming, and hunting. Today, a large population of the Sami people live outside the traditional Sami area and have moved into the towns of northern Norway or to the Oslo area. Even more still live in traditional Sami settlement areas, but earn their living in modern industries. The Sami culture have many unique forms of expression, including yoik, one of the oldest song traditions in Europe, which is still alive and well today. A yoik is dedicated to a person, animal, or place, and the harmonies reproduce the qualities of the subject. Traditionally, yoiks have no lyrics, or very few lyrics. They usually consist of chanting, not unlike that found in Native American indigenous cultures, and can also include mimicry of animal sounds. Most people acquire their own melody, like having a personal theme song. Because the melody is so closely associated with that person, Sami speakers refer to making a yoik based on a person's appearance or personality as yoiking someone. It's bad form to perform your own yoik. It's seen as a kind of boasting. Most yoik melodies are about people, but animals and places can also have yoiks, which are passed down from generation to generation. These older yoiks tend to be about animals that are important in Sami life, such as wolves, reindeer, and birds. A yoik can be performed for entertainment, but they do also have a spiritual function. In past times, the Noaidi, the Sami shaman, would perform yoik while beating on a Sami drum to contact the spirit world. During the Christianization of the Sami from the 1700s on, Yoiking was condemned as sinful. Nevertheless, it is still alive as a means of expression and an important cultural symbol. A few time zones to the east in Siberia, reindeer are also herded by the Nenet people. Through a yearly migration of over a thousand kilometers or over 600 miles, they move gigantic herds of reindeer from summer pastures in the north to winter pastures just south of the Arctic Circle an environment where temperatures plummet to negative 50 degrees Celsius, and where crossing the world's fifth largest river after it's frozen over is just part of a day's work. 
Withstanding these conditions isn't too surprising from people who've withstood early Russian colonization, Stalin's regime of terror, and modern-day rangers of rapacious oil and gas development. There are traces of indigenous reindeer economies all across the Yamal Peninsula from which they hail, stretching back a thousand years. But it's recent history that shapes the current Nenet way of life. In 1961, the Soviets collectivized reindeer herds and created several large state-run farms. This is how nomadic herding became part of the Soviet economy, and how the tundra effectively became an open-air meat factory, where the nomads were workers of the Soviet agricultural system with fixed contracts and salaries. After the Soviet Union collapsed, the private reindeer economy began to thrive and state farms dwindled. Today, 80% of the reindeer are privately owned by their herders, with the remaining 20% owned by the current state farms, most of which belong to the local government. The reindeer are raised for meat and for their antlers, which are exported to China as a male potency drug. Reindeer maintain a cultural significance for the nanets. For example, a bride price or dowry may still be paid in reindeer. It's believed the original Nenet people and the reindeer entered a kind of social contract, where the reindeer offered themselves to the humans for sustenance and transport, and the humans agreed to accompany them on their seasonal migration to protect them from predators. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The Nenets still rely on traditional clothing. A Nenet man wears a malitsa, a coat with a hood and gloves made from four reindeer skins, with the fur worn on the inside and the leather on the outside. In extremely cold conditions, the men wear another layer of fur, called a gus. Unlike the Melitza, the gus has leather on the inside and fur on the outside. And equipped with these layers, a man can stay outside overnight and sleep with the herd in temperatures as low as 50 degrees Celsius. The women wear a yagushka, a double layer of about eight reindeer skins which is buttoned up the front. Both men and women wear hip-high reindeer skin boots that consist of an inner and outer boot worn together and tied to a belt. The division of labor is essential to the smooth running of their mobile village. As a general rule, men and boys run everything connected to the grazing, tending, and slaughtering of the reindeer, and the female sphere contains everything else. Nenet women would think nothing of carrying 8-gallon or 30-liter water containers or chopping wood in blizzard conditions. Interactions with other villages are usually a joint activity, with both men and women going to trade. 
There is a slight tendency, though, for selling to be a male activity and buying to be a female activity. When talking among themselves, Nenets speak a language that is in no way related to Russian, but actually comes from the same language family as that of the Sami. There are two main divisions of their language, Forest Nenet and Tundra Nenet, with the Tundra Nenet further divided into 11 sub-dialects that are mutually intelligible, meaning they're different, but not so much that they can't understand one another. From the late Stalin period on, all children were put into Soviet boarding schools, where Russian was spoken as the primary language, so almost every Nenet under the age of 50 speaks Russian fluently. The enforced attendance of the boarding schools came as something of a shock in the early days, and the families resisted strongly. It was a similar situation to that of the American Indian schools that you heard about in episode 29, Stolen Innocence. Today, the boarding schools have become part of the Nenet life cycle, and parents are supportive of the opportunities that the education provides, giving their children the opportunity to choose between their traditional life in the tundra or moving into the city. Not nearly as cold as Siberia is Poland, where the Kashubians are a true ethnic minority, distinct from the Polish in both language and culture. The Kashubians are believed to have settled in the area 1,500 years ago. Many Kashubians even believe themselves to be the last surviving tribe of the ancient Balts. Estimates as to just how many Kashubians and people of Kashubian descent live in Poland can vary widely. In Poland's 2011 census, a quarter million people declared themselves to be Kashubian, but only 16,000 declared Kashubian as their sole nationality. Similarly, while 108,000 people said they spoke Kashubian at home, only 13,000 declared Kashubian to be their native language. Kashubian enjoys legal protection in Poland as a minority language, it's taught in Polish schools, and can be found on some street signs. One thing you'd be certain to notice if you visited the Kashubian region of Poland is the proliferation of folk art, both religious and secular. Of the many folk art disciplines, the Kashubians pride themselves on their embroidery. Kashubian embroidery uses five colors. Green representing the forest, yellow for the sun, black for the earth, red for fire and for the bloodshed defending their homeland, and shades of blue for the sky, sea, and lakes. Kashubian ceramics are decorated with a number of traditional designs, including the Kashubian star, fish scales, and local flowers, all embellished with wavy lines and dots. The Kashubians are also great weavers, even managing to weave buckets and jugs from pine roots and straw capable of holding water. Their weaving skills can be seen also on the roofs of the thatched houses in the region. Wood is carved into elaborate walking sticks, animal heads, and musical instruments, including the extraordinary borshibas, which is similar to a double bass carved in the shape of a barrel with a horsehair tail. And I dare you to say horsehair tail five times fast. That one line took a lot of takes. The Kashubians are also great snuff-takers, making it themselves and giving it to visitors as a sign of good luck and an invitation to meet again. Traditional Kashubian snuff-boxes are made from cattle horns that are boiled, flattened, and cut into unique shapes. 
named for the region between the Himalayas and the Karakoram Mountains in which they live. The Ladakhi people have lived in this harsh northern Indian desert since the days before Buddhism. The cold climate leaves them with a growing season only four months long, but that does leave them with a lot of indoor time, which they devote to organizing festivals and celebrations, including complex religious chanting, masks, and dresses. Their communities are divided into Muslim and Buddhist subsets. The Ladakhi economy is traditionally based on small farms and herding, but since the 1970s, tourism has become another source of income. The Ladakhi strongly disapprove of public displays of anger, disharmony, or discontent. They idealized a peaceful, united, harmonious community, free of conflict or anger. Conflict, they felt, is a manifestation of a society that is degenerate, though they recognize the failing in their own community. They use third-party arbiters, really whoever is nearby, to settle disputes before things can rise to the level of conflict. If that doesn't work, they go to the goba, the elected head of the village, who listens to both sides of the case and makes a decision. If the goba can't resolve a conflict, the matter is passed to the yolpa, a meeting of the village men. While they may vote on an issue, they rarely do, as they're usually able to reach a consensus. Part of their reason for trying to settle disputes locally is the desire to avoid outside interference in village affairs. Though Ladaki husbands are generally the dominant partner in the marriage, the couples are able to separate and divorce easily. In traditional Ladaki society, the oldest son would inherit the house of his parents, and younger brothers, in order to gain a share of that inheritance, could also marry the older brother's wife. Each man was equally responsible for all of the children, and jealousy was said to be rare. The practice of polyandry and the management of the household economy was said to empower the wives. The Ladakis have a long history of harmonious, peaceful, interfaith marriage and good community relations between the Buddhist and the Muslims. Their traditional society consisted of extended families, small interconnected communities, and mutual interdependence. Their contentment and peace of mind did not rest on external circumstances, but rather on their own inner resources and calmness. Because of the harsh mountain environment of Ladakh, helpfulness and cooperation among families was essential for survival. The Ladakhi established cooperative groups, called Pashums, in which several unrelated families maintained alliances of friendship and cooperation. If both parents in a family were to die, other adults in the Pashum would adopt the young children. If a family separated, other members of the Pashum would make a fair division of their property. In such a tight-knit community, the ultimate form of punishment was ostracism, though it was rarely needed. And if a person did not cease the offending behavior, the Lamas would stop serving their religious needs, which was highly demoralizing to the Ladakhis. Southwest of the Ladakh is the land of the formerly nomadic tribe of the Rabari. Though they have many creation stories involving Hindu gods and goddesses, the Rabari may have migrated from the Iranian peninsula millennia ago, making them genetically distinct from other people of India. 
Today, most of the Rabari are settled, though some still continue as nomads, raising cattle, camels, and goats. Those who settle down often live in villages or small towns with other tribes, but the Rabari can be easily identified by looking at the women, who are usually clad in long black headscarves, copious jewelry, with distinctive brass earrings that hang on low stretched earlobes. They also wear tattoos of magical symbols on their neck, breasts, and arms. In contrast to the women, Rabari men commonly appear in white dhoti, a sort of pants skirt cross popular in India, a short vest, and gold earrings. Embroidery is a vital, living, and evolving expression of the traditions of the Rabari. Rabari women have done embroidery as an expression of creativity and tribal identity for as far back as anyone can remember. Rabari embroidery features bold shapes and designs taken from mythology and from their desert surroundings. They also include tiny glass mirrors in a variety of shapes to really make things shine. As a former burlesque dancer, I endorse that practice. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with a mention of a discovered people that would fit in a soccer van. In 1984, the last nine members of the Panupti tribe of Australia met white men for the first time. They didn't know about cars or even clothing. When planes would fly over their area, they thought it was the devil and hid under trees. The two sisters and their seven children said that they were not the last of their people, but had only become separated from the rest of their tribe. But no further Panupti people have ever been found. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.